the way we uh, cheers has has really shifted lately. It really has. <laughs> we'll get back to the good old Welcome days. Welcome back to me. It's been a while since I've been here. I was on vacation, so. How was the vacation? Oh, it was fantastic. I've got pictures on Facebook. <laughs> that is outstanding. I know. But um, we wanted to talk a little bit more about how things, because we've had a number of, of um, applications that we've, that, you know, yeah. the longer it's been since we talked about it, the more applications we've got under our belt. And so we want to talk about some new legislation that a lot of people think is unfair to the accused person. But there's a lot of reasons to actually take lemons and make lemonade, right? Yeah. So, th you know, this may seem like a deja vu to some of our uh, um, viewers, but we spoke uh, multiple times about, you know, Bill C-51, which brought in this new regime. And I love saying the word regime. I know where you do. the defense had to make disclosure of messages and records and pictures and all sorts of things in their possession. And at the time, I thought the sky was falling. It's the end of criminal justice as we know it. Where on earth do you have to disclose defense evidence, you know, aside from possibly an alibi? This is absurd. It's catastrophic, all those terms. Now, like several years later, and we're 21, 22 applications in now, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's it's worked out. And I think we should probably just remind people about the legislation, some of the, the new law, but then talk about some of the real advantages that we've seen now. Well, first of all, like uh, prior to this legislation, a lot of people would do these pretrial applications, mostly with evidence that had to do with the sexual nature, evidence of a sexual nature. But there was kind of a form you could fill out. And there was it was really bare bones, the way these applications are mostly filled out. Yeah, so for so there's always been Section 276 under the Criminal Code that said that any evidence of a prior sexual act for which you want to uh, ask questions about was barred uh, if it went to the twin myths. And that was, you know, pretty straightforward, understandable legislation. And you brought an application and the threshold wasn't that high and everything made sense back then. And then they amended it to say other sexual activity, so not just prior sexual activity. And, um, and and that's very, you know, it's interpreted very differently. So that can include flirting for some judges, whereas for other judges, you know, that just, no, we're only talking about actual physical acts of kissing or, you know. Uh, Hand holding. Hand holding, yeah. Don't yeah, forget yeah. that one. But it's different for every judge what, they, what, what that phrase uh, of a sexual nature means. And parsing it out. So... We never had an issue before when we wanted to say people got together for an evening. And so they might have been talking and then one thing led to another and then they were kissing and holding hands and then it stopped and then they went to have a drink or did something. Then they wound up kissing and holding hands and then, then it moved into a bedroom. But then the world went a bit crazy because certain judges would say, oh, no, 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 no. The hand holding and kissing that happened an hour and a half ago, that's a totally separate incident. That's other sexual activity. That's not admissible. So they'd parse it in very crazy ways, whereas we'd see it as one flow of a transaction. I know. And, and that's one of the problems is that, like, you know, was it fluid or, you know, at what point do you say there's too much of a break in time for it to be part of the transaction? So what do we do? We assume on err on the side of caution, everything goes in to these applications. Yeah. So that's a good point. So that, that's a good starting point. So, you know, because of the amendment to Section 276 and some of the position of judges that we've received, we just don't take a chance on it. We will 
include things that we would normally have said is part of the transaction or part of the evening. And we just include it in the application because we don't want the grief and we lay it out and we'll talk about it later, but that helps with our narrative anyways. It doesn't really hurt. But that that's some of the craziness. Like you'd think about an hour before their date, they're kissing or they're talking and holding hands and flirting. Somehow that's other sexual history, but it is. We've gotten accustomed to it, so it's not such a big deal. But, you know, the bigger issue, which was the amendments, which created these new sections, 278.92 and 278.94, the criminal code, it was a big deal. And then the Supreme Court of Canada in JJ uh, uh, held this legislation to be constitutional. And there were a number of, you know, important things that came out of JJ. But basically, you know, we take the position that any and all material that you have related to the complainant, all the messaging, all the pictures, all the um, things that maybe even are in social media and posted that may be of a mundane or public nature we even include because we just don't want to take the chance. All of that has to be disclosed, has to be vetted through a judge, and if, if found to be a record, we'll go to the complainant's lawyer. So that that's the regime we're talking about. Right. So what's the good news? <laughs> well, the good news is that, you know, a lot of defense lawyers have been really skeptical of, of using this legislation and they try to withhold as much as possible. We found the opposite, that um, when you lay out the accusation uh, in full and we have, you know, a, a well-crafted and presented anticipated evidence of what we expect our person to testify to, that you can lay out the foundations in, in a much more effective way and uh, there's a couple of notes for that too. It's very important to accurately summarize, even if it sounds bad, to accurately summarize what the, what the complainant has said. It's very important to be accurate with that. So otherwise, you're going to be challenged. Oh, that's not really what she said. You have to have credibility. He or she. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the anticipated evidence, I think, is where it gets into a little more, you know, cautious territory in terms of, and maybe Michael, you, you want to oh, weigh gonna, in on this? No, I was just going to say, why? why is that? Because it's it's essentially the equivalent of giving a police statement. Well, and right? reverse disclosure almost. Right? It is. It is reverse disclosure. It, for, it forces us. So in the application, in order to ground the relevance, we have to put forward to some extent what the defense position is. Now, JJ says, you know, you don't even necessarily have to put in an, app, uh, an affidavit on right. stage one to see if from, it's relevant. From the accused person. Right. They said anybody. A could be from anybody. Could be. And then when you do, let's say you go on a stage to put in an affidavit, just has to be enough to sort of give a description of what the defense may be and how it's relevant. Yeah, that's not really real. That's, that's, that's bullshit. You really have to lay it out. So in essence, what you have to do is very carefully analyze the case much earlier on and be very careful about how you lay out your anticipated evidence, both in the application and in the affidavit. It forces you to do that. If you don't do that accurately, it can come back and bite you in the ass, particularly because on the application, the Crown, not the complainant's counsel, but the Crown has the right to cross-examine on that affidavit. That evidence is admissible at trial. And mm -hmm. normally the accused has to be the one to put in the affidavit because they're the only one who can verify that certain documents are, right. are accurate and true. I'm sure people are already thinking this. How many times have you had the accused cross-examined on the affidavit at that stage? Twice. I was thinking about half the time. No, 
I think it's twice. Well, this Maybe is three a, times. There's a certain prosecutor who wants to cross-examine oh, before time. they're I even know, permitted, but, right? <laughs> but, you know, I, I in, out of the 21 or 22, I think we've had you maybe four or five times but it sort of died off a, a little it's bit it's not exciting anymore it, for the no, crowd you know they got really excited oh, at yeah. the beginning like this is great and then they realized it's not working out so well and it's kind of died off a little bit but i just want to back up for one second so so we lay out all the records but the other thing that we do is what about records that the the complainant turns over to the police that goes to the crown so let's say messaging and some of that can be selective messaging. We always talk about how they don't give the complete picture, but it goes over to the Crown. JJ says, if it's a production from, from the Crown, right. as part of their disclosure, you don't have to vet it through this regime. But have you found that to be true, Mr. Burry? Absolutely not. Oh, tell us about your interesting recent experience. Well, I had a case where it was disclosed to me, and then the Crown said, Oops-a-daisy, we made a boo-boo. That was a mistake. We didn't get... What was disclosed? Text messages. Text messages between the complainant and the accused. How many? Several. A lot. Lots. Lots. Yeah, lots. And, and were they redacted? Yes. Explain what that means to everybody. Redacted means... This is almost like Sesame Street. Yeah, redacted slowly. means someone has sat down with these, got the big black magic marker, or in Adobe, the redaction function, an X... X stuff. <laughs> well, you oh, I got to renew our Adobe. I know you better because <laughs> okay. and blacked out stuff. So yeah. someone's made the conscious effort to review, redact, and release. Who who normally that does like that? Sounds like Eat, in the Pray, crowd's Love office. or something. What? That's right. Who normally does that in the crowd's office? Uh, typically a, a seasoned disclosure clerk, or sometimes a crown, depending on the importance of the case. Wow. So that means that if you were to receive messages that have certain things blacked out you could presume that somebody had applied their mind to it to remove things that might not be relevant or prejudicial and then consciously disclose what would be proper disclosure right. but but again the crown said oops a daisy this was a big accident we take it back it's not a f-ing joke it's not this was like literally and this only occurred at stage one of the motion right, right. so applications filed well in advance both of you worked on the application so 100 percent detailed completely laid out great advocacy not only were they disclosed by the complainant but the complainant referenced the messages in the statement right so so it wasn't just the messages themselves it it became a part of the complainant's entire narrative of what was going on that night right so add that to the mix right (laughs) that's great so she referred to it it became part of her narrative in her statement to police which is the base upon which the police lay the charges. Right. The messages are then disclosed. You guys draft... Not the complainant, which you would think she's giving them because she thinks these are important for the investigation, right? Right, right. right. Which would be seen as, mostly by most people, would be seen as a waiver of her privacy rights. Which right. is supposed to be seen as a waiver. JJ says that, yeah. right? And, and you file a detailed application setting out the entire defense. That's filed. There's no written reply. There was. I think she started fetching at that point. It was a small lip. Yeah, yeah. Get to stage one. And that's when they say for the first time, that was unintended disclosure. Yeah. She didn't waive her privacy rights. That was a oops-a-daisy. Again, not a joke. That's why we're circling back to this. So the reality is, and, 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 and we've come to this habit, that if we get it in disclosure, we include it. 
Well, I think part of the reason why these decisions get made after seeing the application is because the prosecutors do start to, and this is one of the intentions, they do start to rethink about what their prospects of conviction are. Right. And so if you want to take back bad evidence for you, you're not really being, you're not really judiciously doing that review of reasonable prospect of conviction because you're not supposed to take back evidence that doesn't support your theory as a prosecution. Small summary point. So if we get it from the Crown, just so people get it, doesn't form part of the app. It doesn't have to form part of the application. According to JJ, it That's should right. not. We get because it. it's taken as a waiver of privacy. That's right. And it's we a can... product of the investigation as well, which is specifically right. excluded from what would be determined to be a record subject right. to an expectation of privacy. So the whole regime doesn't apply, just so people get it. With those records, they're not right. With those documents, with those text messages, right. we can go crazy. Right? Should be. Okay. But... but yeah, like how we did that at the same yeah. time. Like you, a, can't really rely, you can't really rely. You can't really rely on it. <laughs> okay. And then, me? then often we found <laughs> mm -hmm. that the crown is not necessarily sometimes thinking about how the evidence actually calls into question other inadmissible evidence, mm -hmm. other uh, discreditable conduct, which is something you have to bring a separate application for. So what we've decided to do, and we do it now more, is we just include everything. So it's crown disclosure. We include it. If we think there's bad character evidence in it or discreditable conduct evidence, we put it in there and we flag it for them. Right. That's it's like f***ing paint by numbers for everybody, right? That's important too because uh, the Crown doesn't always bring an application for bad character evidence even though the statements of the complainants will be replete with it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, thinking we won't notice. <laughs> and let's break that down for one second. So in days old, it used to be on anything Also that was known as olden days. In days old, he likes to say that. In dinosaur days, um, when there was a domestic-related offense, so but it includes, in our case, it's sexual assault. Bad character evidence used to be referred to as, well, that's just context evidence with respect to the dynamic of the relationship that 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 assists with understanding why the complaint did or did not do certain things. Okay, so it it went in. Then the law shifted to say, no, no, too much is coming in under that. You have to bring a application crown if you want to call this other discreditable conduct evidence and and you have to justify it so that's where we are now today the problem is that 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 happens rarely like we have to remind them to bring the application, to bring the application. right right and it's sometimes an issue too um whether or not they can contain that type of evidence if they say because if you get uh, certain kinds of you know, this always happened or this never happened, I would never agree to this, then it opens them up to cross-examination on those precise points. So mm -hmm. it's not always in the Crown's best interest to put that evidence in. That's why it's important to think about first, because for fairness of trial, you can't allow one side of a narrative to come out and then not allow the other person to cross-examine on that exact same narrative. So we, we've erred on the side of caution now where we just literally lay absolutely everything, everything out, no matter what. So Polis bolus. Explain this to our viewers. So my client just dumped on me a shared folder, which must have hundreds of different flavors of documents, text messages, photographs, a little bit more explicit photographs, just everything. Yeah. What do you say to your client? What well, are we for, well, you say to them, give me everything. Right. Let's assess its relevance right. because we have to be careful. Is there some evidence that's really not relevant or is it right. too gratuitous? Right. Right. Is it over the top? Diana, 
Well, this is also a reason why it's important that the um, that the accused version of events is included in the application because sometimes their evidence is relevant to rebut something a complainant says, but sometimes it's relevant to support something they're going to testify to. So it's not just one side of the story you're addressing at that point, that, that their evidence will become relative and at the, the initial stage prior to trial that it should be taken at its highest that the applicant's version of events may be true. And so that's important. So part of what we're doing when we do these applications is we're storytelling. We're telling a story and laying out in a very in a very detailed manner the defense. And evidence that would be admissible is not just restricted to uh, contradicting or rebutting what the complainant says by way of their narrative, but also it may be relevant to the coherence of the evidence of the accused when they testify. Right, and that's so important to remember because we've talked about this before too, there is a presumption of innocence and there should be what what <laughs> there should be just like they say like oh we hashtag believe complainants we should be going into this especially before the trial is actually right. officially taking place assuming that maybe the applicant is innocent maybe the accused person is telling the truth and that's i think a very important aspect of these applications that sometimes prosecutors forget as well because we've seen quite often they'll say well, that doesn't matter because the complainant said this. And I said, well, the complainant can say that at trial. But in this application, our guy is saying this. And if he's telling the truth, this evidence can support his version of events. That has some value to it. Tremendous value. Yeah. So a lot of people might be scratching their heads thinking back to Gameshi. What was different about the Gameshi trial versus what you're talking about now? That was the one that started this. I mean, right. that's the good old days. Yeah, I know. So, Just you know, so you the Gameshi case was when you know, uh, Marie and, and her team had in possession tons voluminous communications between the complainants and Mr. Gomeshi, which undermined their narrative. Mm -hmm. As well as they managed to get a third party records application with communications between two of the main complainants. Right. But one would imagine, you know, the Crown would have been knowledgeable about that at the you time know. of the third party records application. But, you know, you, you know, they had, you know, a plethora of, of records completely undermining the complainants and also showing collusion, right? right? So you would cross-examine and you'd right. say, did you not on Monday after the date say, you know, thank you very much for the date. It was amazing, X, Y, and Z. I don't, I didn't say that. Are you sure you didn't say that? Like that was the good old days, yeah, right? Old days. And, and and the whole bull that came out of that is somehow that they're, they're, they're Being ambushed. Being blindsided or yeah. ambushed. Yeah. And I remember we did a panel discussion on the new legislation and specifically the Gameshi case. And I think I made a really good point. I remember you turning around because we just recently met at that point. Yeah, and he was like, what a good point. It was like, it doesn't matter because uh, one of our panelists said, well, how are they supposed to remember what they emailed? And I was like, it doesn't matter if they remember it. It's an accurate capture of what they were actually thinking at the time. How the f*** is the accused supposed to remember what he did or said? 30 years before when an application, when a charge comes out decades later. Nobody right. gives a shit about their memory or how they're supposed to muster a defense. You know, why is it, why is it our job to remind a complainant about shit that they said that's truthful and real-time evidence of really what the dynamic was? Why is it our job to help them? And jump through all those hoops. That's what our argument was. And and I'm, we're still of that view that really, when you think about it, like, no, we shouldn't have to do that. But it hasn't worked against us so much. Yeah, and, and to be fair, with the new legislation, 
you know, it, it was pointed out, and it is true, that if they make certain statements and then they change their evidence from the time they made the statement after the application to when they testify in court, they'd be like, you're aware of the application that took place, right? So you can confront them with changing their evidence based on what they were most likely made aware of during the application. And under JJ, it's stage one. If the documents are, are ruled to be records and you go to stage two, or they're ruled to be admissible, because they have to be admissible as well, um, the judge can limit what's allowed to go to the complainant or complainant's counsel. So there can be redactions. And generally we found complainant's counsel to be very judicious about what they actually do disclose sufficient to get instructions. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've acted really quite reasonably. Tell me something, because Yuvi was asking me this the other day. There are no rules with respect to complainant's counsel and what she can or he can disclose to the complainant, are there? We can't know what was disclosed. It's, sure. not, it's not ruled out in JJ, but, right. but what is not used enough, and we haven't worried about it, to be honest, because mm -hmm. I, I, I frankly don't give a because when complainants change their evidence, it just gives us more yeah, exactly. to cross-examine on, you know, and then... And you're good at that. <laughs> well, thank you. But, you know, it's just like, well, that's exciting. Well, tell me how'd you come up with that excuse for your, uh, right. for that particular message. Let's read the English. Yeah. You know, I'd love to have sex with you. That was a great time. Thank you. And now you're saying, no, no, that was him pressuring me to say that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, or something stupid like right. that, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, we, we haven't cared about it that much, but you can, at stage one, when the ruling is made, their records and they are admissible, say, based upon these submissions, I'm asking that only this much goes to complainant's counsel and should only be this much to be disclosed to the complainant. You can do that. It's That's underused. Good to know. Yeah, I think so. I haven't heard many people using that. Because there's not, the rulings, the, the part of the problem is we don't get the rulings. Like there's lots of rulings, but they're not really on the, uh, the database, database yeah. in, in, in Quick Law or Canly or whatever. And so you don't have that type of guidance. They were at the beginning before we got the ruling from Supreme Court because the judges... Yeah. Everybody was trying to figure it out. We're trying to share their rulings to help other judges figure out what to do. Yeah. But now that we have the Supreme Court ruling, it's very rare to see them mm -hmm. published. It, let's just say one thing. So people may be wondering, you know, how do you determine what, what is a record? So the test actually is, you know... Um, it, it's something, if a record relates to the complainant, contains personal information for which there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. If the record contains sexual activity, then of course it's subject to the, to the regime. So the exception used to be previously as well, that if it was about the subject matter of the offense. Um, directly related to the directly allegation. Directly related to the allegations. The it's not subject to this type of regime. We're not clear on JJ that that really applies anymore. We see that if it's a record, it's not clear to me that we can get away with holding it back. No, because they what they said is that it may not be covered by 276 because it's subject matter of the charge, but it may still have too much prejudicial effect right. or privacy invasion yeah. that it's not justified for the probative value, right? So, so the, the value of the evidence is not overcome by what would be seen as like a humiliation or embarrassment to the complainant. Have you ever had a case where this pops up in the middle of a trial? That's a very good point. I try. We have, Diana. Yes, I know. So we have to bring these applications. Normally um, pre-trial. Before trial. Let's say you don't. 
and it comes up during trial. Well, in which case you're, you're guessing as to, based on mostly the police statement as to what's going to be said, right. but we haven't actually had the trial evidence yet. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the complainant will go totally off script of mm -hmm. what they were saying before. They might throw out new information mm -hmm. that in one of the cases, I'm sure that's the one you're thinking of, the prosecutor was even going, what, what, what? Where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah. They had to go off and run and look for, for new stuff that they might've been missing. And so stuff can come up mid-trial that will then allow you, and you can reopen an application. So if you fail in, even in part on mm -hmm. an application, but then something happens during trial, you can reopen it. Just so the people application. know that, it's important. Or you can bring an application you didn't know you needed because of something that's said during evidence at trial. So it's not completely like a, Etched in stone. a crap show. Yeah at the beginning that it can be revisited and we in fact did bring up because some of the testimony that came out was completely unexpected mm -hmm. and and uh, there were certain things we thought we were going to be conceded everybody would have thought would be conceded that uh, then were challenged mm -hmm. you know by the complainant during the testimony so um and, and we were successful at which point the crown actually withdrew the charges yeah, it, it's a it's a rare. Well, it's because she refused to come back for cross examination. Well, so I know. have a problem she, too. You know, she, knew she was screwed. Um, <laughs> but you know, there are instances where you may have records, and for some strategic purpose, you don't think it's really relevant until, or you should bring the application until the evidence has has gone in through the uh, through the crown, or even partway through cross, and then you you can stop and bring a mid-trial application. If you're before a jury, that really could create a mistrial. So that's not something you want to necessarily do. But in a judge alone trial, really? you, you can, and it's happened to us. Aren't you going to have a judge say, hey, come on, that's a bit greasy. You knew, you should have you known and brought this pretrial. Well, you, you can be subject to, you know, quite Smack, a bit of, yeah. uh, of, a, uh, of, a, yeah. of a smacking around on yeah. that, but you can still do it. Yeah. Nothing prevents uh, like the Supreme Court says, err on the side of caution right. in advance. Right? Yeah, and they, they can say, like the Supreme Court told you. But, you know, you can't. But we, we don't, we say you really shouldn't do that. Right. But there are instances, which is in our case, and, and frankly, this was because we had other evidence that we thought was gratuitous. We thought it's just too much. Yeah. This is like too embarrassing for well, the complainant. We have to justify it, that you're not just trying to, humiliate you know, humiliate them. the person. Yeah, right. And, but, and we applied our minds to that and said, this is too much. It's too much. We're not going to do it. And the client was going, no, no, you should do it. And we're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're officers of the court. This is too much. We've got a lot more reliable information. But then, Offside you know, she went. Offside, in cross-examination, yeah. completely disagreed with stuff that we thought, what the f***? Like, mm -hmm. you know... It's like you're saying the earth doesn't rotate. Right. But I think this is a really important point to make as well because there's so much criticism of defense lawyers that we're somehow abusive of complainants. And the fact that, that we're actually Tell restraining ourselves in these applications People and we do no turn idea, our minds. Yeah. We do turn our minds to what can we justify and what is just gratuitous. Right. And if you if you try to go scorched earth and gratuitous, you you're not gonna, gonna get very far. not do well. No. Right. And I, I think that there's a real misunderstanding about the fairness of what's going on, which leads me to another point. I let, think. let me just say one thing. You know, most defense lawyers who practice in this area, sexual assault, because it really is, you know, a subspecialty now that you really have to practice to know how to do it properly, do, do pay attention to the guidance from the courts and do not necessarily want to overplay a hand with gratuitous information to humiliate a witness because or complain it, it will not benefit you. It'll backfire. And they do take that 
judgment very seriously. I'm sorry, it was leading into another point. Well, and I think this is maybe a good point to kind of finish off, and everybody I'm sure has their own views on this. But I, I think it's generally agreed that the purpose of this new legislation was to obtain more convictions. Right? <laughs> what did JJ say at the beginning? You know, we must do more. We must do better, yeah. And uh, but, but I wanted to ask you your thoughts on is there's this whole concept that's been out there and part of the, the crafting of this legislation that we need to balance the rights of an accused, which is a right to a fair trial, with the rights of complainants, which they quite often like to call victims in advance. They call them always victims, yeah. yeah. So that they I want to they balance rights the rights of a person's right to a fair trial <laughs> with the privacy rights of complainants. So how do you think this is playing out? What, is, what do you make of this idea of balancing rights? I understand because we've all seen it, that there have been cross-examinations that were improper. We've seen it. And in, in the old days, you know, lawyers would get away with it. But I, I found that it was counterproductive, wasn't pleasant to do, and, and didn't necessarily help your case. You know, you may incidentally get an acquittal, but not because you had an, you know, an overly invasive and embarrassing cross-examination, but it happened. So I get the idea that there has to be fairness to a witness or a victim, as they want to call it in the legislation. I understand that. But we regard them as complainants because there's presumption of innocence. These allegations need to be uh, tested, you know, under the crucible of, you know, a trial, which is the key part is cross-examination. And yes, we're balancing the right to some dignity and civility and privacy, but that can never outweigh the rights of an accused where their liberty is at stake. And liberty is really just, um, it's just one aspect. Being charged with this offense is life-altering. Being acquitted, your life is still life-altered. These charges are extremely serious. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that this is life-altering. And a conviction will result in devastating uh, uh, consequences for an accused. So I think, I think you'd agree with me that what we've seen, the courts are doing a better job than we thought. Striking a balance, but keeping in mind that, this, that liberty is at the heart of our considerations, that, that that is extremely important. That's why we quote Nisnik now in our written submissions, almost at the beginning, because there was a very apt uh, decision with, with a number of very good paragraphs by Her Honor that we think is very important and at play here. What does Nisnik say? Tell people. Well, essentially it says, a, tri a, a you know, a trial is not about, um, I wish I could directly quote it's it okay, now. It's okay, just it, summarize it. Said, uh, she talked about the Me Too, because the Me Too movement was really um, prevalent at the time. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, hashtag believe is not a legal principle, nor mm -hmm. should it ever be. And it's not, a trial isn't about, you know, a vindication of a complainant's allegation. Right. It's a trial based upon principles, the presumption of innocent proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that we must hold dear to these principles. We must still be careful about wrongful convictions. It says all the right things mm -hmm. and tries to explain to the, you know, uh, observer that, that there are other issues and principles at play here. So I just think it's a, it, it strikes a very good balance and I hopefully... It explains to what would be complainants as well as to the public 
why we have to be so careful in these trials. Well, for Michael, there's uh, you maybe address this as well. There's a, a phrase that we use quite often because it's case law that an accused has the right to a fair trial, but not to a perfect trial right. that has the most advantageous aspects to them. So why is that? It's just how these things play out, right? The accused should have almost a perfect trial at all times, I think. As best as we can do, That's right? That's the balancing of rights. That's the balancing, right? Right, you know, I, I gotta say, you know, I, I think that's a bit of a throwaway f f phrase. Like, I, I think they're not entitled to a perfect trial. No. You can't have a perfect trial. Like, you just can't. This is an exercise in human behavior and psychology and dynamics. It's not a scientific analysis or question or, or you know, study. So you can't have a perfect trial. I think, though, on balance, that the courts try and err on the side of giving as fair a trial to an accused as possible where it is properly um, laid out. Well, and, and I guess that's another thing about the applications and what we do as well. We're very careful to explain to the judge why it is we're seeking to use this evidence so that they understand we're not looking to um, attack the character unnecessarily. It goes to a, a direct relevant issue at trial. And it is so important to do that because even though something could be used, to uh, to perpetuate some sort of rape myth. It doesn't mean that's how it's being used. We're not out to assassinate character. Yeah. character so right? it's important. It's important, and that's part of the the art of what we've learned to do, and and why there are. It is a, as you say a subspecialty of people who understand the legislation and 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 what's required in these cases to to really be clear because that's the whole point of the application. You have to make it um, perfectly clear what it is you expect the evidence to advance at trial and what it is you are not wanting it to be used for in terms of some sort of myth or stereotype. Yeah, and, and it's really changed. I mean, it's a, binge, it's a big shift in dynamic and, and sort of a paradigm for defense lawyers because you are literally laying out your case. and It's written advocacy, which we've never done up front unless in charter litigation and stuff like that. So it really is extremely detailed that way and you have no choice and it's the smartest way to go about it. Um, and I think it, I think it does work out in the end, but I do think, you know, when it comes to trying to balance the rights, it's good. I, I think it's a, these, these are difficult cases, but I'm, I'm, I've been cautiously optimistic now. We do it with decency. That's we the bottom it. line. Well, we do it well. We do it well. <laughs> yeah. we do okay. It well, let's end on that. Yeah. And we always say, get it right the first time. Right. Well, it, hang on. We're not going away. You know what? You're right. Because. Calls. You don't want to have to pay for an appeal. <laughs> for the appeal. No, but you know what? Just Let's just say this for one second, closing out this one, because I'm probably going to say it in another one too. When you lay out these applications, what are you contemplating doing at trial? What's going to be a big part of your defense? Calling your client. Calling your client. Calling your client to testify. I heard the whisper. Right? <laughs> Calling your client to testify. I can count on one hand. I've said this a number of times. I, maybe in five cases I've done, I've never called my client. The majority of them, I've absolutely called you my client. You almost always have to. Yeah. You have no choice. How yeah. can you not? So, like, that's just an important part of this and, and why I think this written advocacy sort of helps us. Okay, now we can click. Now we can reclaim. Okay, yeah, sorry, we'll re sorry about that. It's a so thank you very much, everybody, for watching. Keep sending in the questions and comments. Get the pillow, get the pillow. If you like, if you, if you yeah, like need one. what you're around. seeing, yeah, like, share, around. subscribe. <laughs> They're around with the pillow. Uh, I beg so your pardon. Like, share, subscribe, <laughs> hit notification.
Have a good night and thank you, everybody. The pillow survived. <laughs>